Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings. Uh, I'm together with Dr. Razvan Porum who, like myself, is Romanian. Uh, nevertheless, he is in Europe, in England, and I'm in Chicago at this point. Uh, Dr. Porum is a researcher at the Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies in Cambridge, United Kingdom. Uh, and he's a translator, writer, speaker um, on Orthodox Christian topics. Um, and he wrote a book called Orthodoxy and Ecumenism Towards an Active Metanoia. Um, the book came out at Peter Lang. Um, and uh, what year did it come out, Rosman? Uh, 2019. 2019. And it is based on, or it is based on your dissertation, right? Yes, my doctoral thesis. That is correct. Your doctoral thesis, uh, and you, you, which you did in the UK or in Romania? Yes, I did it here in Cambridge with uh, the Orthodox Institute. With the Orthodox Institute. And who, who coordinated it? Um, well, uh, my supervisors were Dr. Zoe Bennett, who at the time was director of postgraduate programs of the Cambridge Theological Federation, and Dr. Jeremy Morris, who uh, is a lecturer here at the Faculty of Divinity. At the time, he was dean of King's College, if I remember correctly. So these were my my uh, guides here in uh, in Cambridge throughout my research period. Mm-hmm. But before coming to the United Kingdom, as you we were talking earlier, you have worked for many years in. Uh, ecclesial context, especially in uh, back in Romania, in Moldavia, right in your hometown of Yash. Um, let, let me ask you, why did you decide to do your dissertation and then your book on this topic? Because when I mentioned this topic to a few friends, they were very surprised and said, is that not an oxymoron? <laughs> Orthodoxy and ecumenism. Uh, please. 
Precisely because um, it was an, well, it, well, many people see it as an oxymoron. Perhaps that's that was my motivation to to start re- researching it. Well, but, well, I first of all thank you for having me uh, talk with you um, in in this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, about my background, uh, my background is a bit uh, odd. Um, I originally am a literature graduate. Um, I studied English literature and Romanian literature in my um, early days. Um, And um, I found myself working for the church pretty much after graduation as an editor. So I had um, a sort of my my literary sort of uh, background was put to... um, uh, to to work, um, uh, so that's how I started to work for the church. I, I worked for the uh, what was then Trinitas Publishing House in Yash, um, um, and closely with then Metropolitan uh, Daniel of Moldavia and Bukovina. Now, currently, of course, he's the Patriarch of Romania. Um, so I was always a bit of an outsider, if you like. I didn't come from the I didn't come from the usual, you know theological background as all of the other people uh, you know did who worked for the for the church I was a literature guy um, um, a lay person um, so I I had a degree of uh, how shall I put it uh, uh, um, independence maybe or uh, or detachment uh, but I was very much um, devoted to Orthodox faith. Um, I still try to be, but at the time I was extremely sort of um, motivated, and I was, um, even though I wasn't formally a theologian. Um, but uh, through Ascor, the Student Association of Yash at the time, uh, at the time it was one of the vibrant, you know, student bodies in Romania. So through them, uh, and they were very ecumenical, and this they reflected uh, to a degree the um, attitude, if you like, of the bishop, Metropolitan um, Daniel, uh, who was at the time very open, very ecumenical. He sort of encouraged ecumenical dialogue, ecumenical interactions, events, and so on. So... Um, um, I was uh, immersed uh, in my youth um, in in the exchanges with the students coming from other you know f- faith traditions and um, it was always a very sort of uh, rewarding you know it's always good to know people to try and understand different contexts uh, but my theology was a bit sketchy uh, at the time um, I you know and um, I didn't know exactly what to do about this whole ecumenical business. And um, the more I looked into it, the more I realized everybody's theology was kind of sketchy when it came to ecumenical participation. Nobody seemed to sort of have any, have a very clear, um, you know, understanding of what it means. And um, and later on, um, after spending quite a lot of time at the Trinitas Publishing House. I um, 
I um, had become, in a sense, proficient in theology. I had edited so much theology. I sort of became a theologian um, by adoption. And um, I became more and more interested about this issue of dialogue. And um, at one point, I was I I was selected to be an intern with the World Council of Churches in Geneva in 2000. I spent a year there uh, from 2000 to 2001. And um, again, uh, very interesting. I, I caught the, the World Council of Churches is still in its day of glory, uh, in its days of glory. Um, it's no longer as big as it was uh, when I was there like 23 years ago, 22 years ago. Um, and again, I was confused as to how I should understand my participation, how I should understand being orthodox in that particular context, how I should understand the communism. Is it good? Is it bad? Um, there is this, uh, you know, tension uh, because um, unresolved, um, because people who participate in ecumenical environments, they carry two sort of uh, messages, you know, um, from the Orthodox world. One of them is that it's okay for the Orthodox to participate. Most of the Orthodox hierarchy seems to agree that it's okay, even uh, advisable or recommended for Orthodox people to take part in ecumenical environments. Other groups, particularly from monastic circles and not minority groups, uh, might I add, are um, rather... uh, Opposed to say the least, they they call the communism pan heresy, the greatest heresy, um, the devil's I don't know scheme, plan to uh, destroy orthodoxy and all sorts of uh, uh, you know um, fantastical things. And um, so, for instance, uh, at the time when I was an intern in Geneva, there was this. Uh, saying um, in circulation, I think from a monk on Mount Athos, it must have been that even if you set foot inside the World Council of Churches, the building, you were doomed for eternal damnation or something like that. And I, you know, every every morning when I entered the building, it kind of resonated. I, we were joking uh, about it at the time, but, you know, there is a sense of, uh, you know, unease when you know that people in your world have this extremely strong uh, view, you know, against communism. Um, but as far as I was concerned, uh, I just didn't know, uh, you know, okay, I, I kind of understood it's okay to be there. Um, I just didn't understand the theology behind it, if you like. Um, so I, w- at the time, I wished there was some sort of book uh, that would give me an idea, at least. You know, uh, I understood it. It's a very complex theme. You know, nobody's going to solve it overnight. Um, but uh, I just wished there were a book that would help me relate. 
and after my book was published, looking through it, um, you know, so I could sort of detach myself and see it a little bit in hindsight, I could see this is probably the book I wished I had at the time, in a sense, um, just um, to give me an idea as to at least where to start, you know, um, some theological reflection regarding my ecumenical participation, you know. I was, yes. Um, so, um, I'm not sure what your question was, but, <laughs> and I'm not sure I've answered it, but um, yeah, yeah that, that was so, the, the beginning of, of everything. So, just to give out the <clears throat> result, uh, and as you say, looking in hindsight, what have you learned uh, through the process of writing the book, right? Uh, you, you you nicely described your moral confusion and big dilemma, right? But what have you learned as you did this book? And then we can go into more details. Well, um, it was... Um... It was uh, the the whole problematic initially revolved around this ecclesiological um, issue of the una sancta paradigm, um, and you know the Orthodox Church is one of those churches um, who uh, see themselves as being as the one church, the one true church, um, and they see it also as the one and only true church. Um, so the issue here is that it therefore cannot accept the existence of other churches outside its ecclesial borders. Um, so from a very simplistic viewpoint, you know, in a way, the question, um, which in, to a degree is legitimate, arises um, as to why do the Orthodox participate in ecumenical contexts, since they don't even view the other churches as being churches, right? So, um, and I made this slightly controversial question, my research question, if you will, um, and attempted to find an answer to it um, in, in, in my book, or a number of answers. Now, what I found out, I'll try and... Uh, before, cover before everything as briefly as I can. Uh, yeah, before, yes? yeah do that, but I, just to open a parenthesis, you used the word ecumenical uh, dialogue or, or ecumenism. Is that the same in your view with interreligious dialogue? Or because somehow to me the ecumenical movement has some programmatic connotation which entails more than just interreligious dialogue. It entails the attempt of unification, of trying to produce a certain type of unity. Correct me if I'm wrong, and if and then we come back to, to interrupt you there. Yes, um, I think the paradigm has changed and shifted uh, throughout the years. I think, yes, in the beginning, certainly there was the idea of a visible unity. I'm not sure things are seen in quite the same way nowadays. Um, uh, I certainly don't 
I wouldn't necessarily um, encourage a definition like that of ecumenism. Um, but but your question is is uh, very good uh, in that it uh, reminds me to mention that when I talk about uh, the ecumenical movement, I refer in you know to to the ecumenical movement, if you like, as it is reflected in the World Council of Churches. Um, which, for better or worse, at least can serve as a paradigm, you know, for the, as a tangible paradigm for the ecumenical movement. Um, uh, aside um, from uh, what it did achieve or did not achieve, at least it was a good sort of, you know, image, the ecumenical movement. And, and that image included mostly the Protestant churches, which indeed arguably started this movement, uh, and the Orthodox churches, who joined in uh, slightly later, but uh, with great devotion to the ecumenical cause, um, initially at least. Um, so, so this is what this is the the area of in my mind. This is the area of operation of, of ecumenism. Uh, now, of course, this is a limited uh, uh, view, vision, if you like. But but I had to use something, you know, so that I. Plus, that was my experience. I, my experience was with the ecumenical movement in this sort of. Um, uh, configuration, you know, the, the Protestant ecumenical churches and the Orthodox churches in dialogue with the Catholics, kind of uh, on the side, uh, friendly, friendlier and friendlier, you know, towards the ecumenical movement, but never really committing to it. Uh, again, una sancta ecclesiology. Um, and um, so, again, why why did they choose not to? Participate and why did the Orthodox choose to participate? Maybe I'll ask. Maybe I'll answer this question, and and what follows. Yeah. So uh, maybe before you continue in my initial question, before I interrupted you, I think I can read a very nice defin definition of ecumenism that you provide at the end of the book, which I think is very suggestive and. Uh, um, that's page 214, you say there, this study has suggested that ecumenism originates and occurs in a personal and interpersonal level, so to speak only of a programmatic institutional ecumenism and thus to a degree to depersonalize it may lead to an incomplete understanding of the concept in exercising its vocation of action and engagement Ecumenism does not break away from theology as an independent specialist approach, but remains an integral part of theology. Further, ecumenism remains inextricably linked to the spiritual components of Christian life. Prayer, liturgy, transformation, metanoia, this title says. These dimensions inform a spiritual dynamic engagement, which leads to a gradual and continuous transformation of the human being. This perspective also points to the fact, as has been stated in the section above, that ecumenism as mainstream theology is a calling and a vocation addressed to all and not only to a specialized few. So what I got from this, and 
while reading the book is that you somehow um, veer away from a definition of ecumenism as a program or as an institutional program, uh, which mostly is, I, when I hear ecumenism, that's why I hear, I hear like some official type of statements provided by various religious groups and they come together. It's like UNO, like, uh, uh, right, the UN, right? Whereas throughout the book, you are, I think, moving away from this, you know, rigid organization, top-down approach to a much more, I would say, grassroots approach that's, I think, your first word there is interpersonal, which I think is very important. That's why I asked you about real interreligious dialogue, right? Dialogue is something happening at a personal level as opposed to something that is happening at an institutional level. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, in, in, uh, that's very, that's right. Um, of course, Adrian, uh, the... Uh, what people take away from ecumenical interactions is particularly this personal component, the personal interactions, the personal dialogue, the personal relationships, the personal friendships they develop, you know. Um, and and um, this is what, if you like, gives strength to the ecumenical movement. Without this component of friendship, of dialogue, of interrelation on a more sort of personal, intimate level, uh, we I don't think we would even have ecumenical movements at all. So, um, and I, I remember once I was thinking, it's, it's interesting to follow young people, you know, involved in the ecumenical movement. Um, I said at one point, and uh, many people were in agreement, that in many ways ecumenism belongs to the young, you know, that you need that sort of enthusiasm, you need that sort of, um, you know, before you reach any degree of, um, you know, skepticism or cynicism, um, you need that degree of, 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 of you know, authenticity and 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 pure enthusiasm. Um, so, but when I said uh, when I when I mentioned the programmatic character, that was so. In that in that phrase, I was criticizing the Protestants and then the Orthodox, if you like, um, and they were both disappointed with the ecumenical movement. Both the Protestants and the Orthodox are currently have been. Um, well, were disappointed by the ecumenical movement, and the Protestant the Protestants' disappointment was that all of these meetings, all of these assemblies, all of these central committee meetings and subcommittee meetings, and all of the activity of the World Council of Churches did not produce results. Did not produce visible, tangible results. Did not produce. Oh, there has been the unification of you know. Or finally, there was intercommunion between this church and that other church, uh, certainly not the Orthodox. And then there was a sense of we're just wasting our time. We're, we're just trying to do, we're trying to work systematically towards achieving these goals. Um, and nothing happens, you know. Uh, so I would say that's a terrifically impatient approach. 
Um, and it has something of the enthusiasm, the Protestant enthusiasm of the beginning of the 20th century when, you know, people really thought they would live to see the church united in their lifetimes. It was terrific effervescence in those early days. Um, the Orthodox, on the other hand, uh, they uh, want to keep ecumenism as far as possible from the life of the church uh, because it's inconvenient, right? Um, I always use this example in, in Moscow. The, they have an ecumenical branch. Uh, it's not the best example. Moscow, it's becoming less and less so. But they, had, uh, they, have, they call it the Department of External Relations. This is the ecumenical debate. This idea of an external sort of diplomatic activity in which you engage, it's outside the sphere of the life of the church. It's something that you do on the side. Um, the purpose is kind of unclear, perhaps. There is, I'll talk about the purpose in a second. Um, but uh, until the Orthodox, I mean, the Orthodox will will face the same disappointment and um, lack of clarity, if you like, with regard to ecumenism, as long as they don't start from the grassroots, like you said, you know, as long as they don't understand this is what we, it's not somebody we appoint to do ecumenism, you know, it's not like we have this specialized person, we have this specialized politician, specialized politician, um, uh, you know, um, ecumenical uh uh, expert whom we delegate to represent the church at this event and that event and he'll know how to you know uh, um, that isn't going to work that's that is only going to remain a, a sort of external phenomenon you know has nothing to do with the life of the church my point is that if if you want it to work at least in principle, you have to start from the life of the church. Um, and you have to make it the business of the entire community of the church, not just a select uh, category of experts. That would be my, that was my, of course, this is all, uh, we're, 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 we you know, decades, centuries possibly away from that, or maybe you know, maybe it'll remain an aspiration, you know, but um, at least that's the vector that I see as at least the initial key to unlocking this um, impasse, you know, the ecumenical movement. Um, but uh, a few uh, remarks there. Now, why would that, what's, what would be the goal of this, let's say, ecumenical dialogue or encounter is it uh, let's say a social cultural for example in the united states i would envisage it as taking on the militantly anti-religious secular society right there is a point where religious people somehow have to stick together to maintain and uphold certain values certain beliefs when it comes to what it means to be human uh, definitions of uh, of sex and things like that uh, in the wake of, let's say, uh, gender ideology, for example. So what would be the goal of this, of this 
interreligious dialogue? Because uh, it, does it, or is it just well? Let's talk because it's nice to talk, right? The dialogue for the sake of dialogue, right? Like where dialogue almost becomes a, a you know, a euphemism or some type of let's talk, but we don't say anything. We'll all go back home. Um, is it that the two groups have something to learn from each other? I think that I would go further down, uh, uh, deeper, um, with your permission. I think that there needs to exist a sort of culture of dialogue, um, a, a culture of looking outward, uh, a culture of openness towards the outside. Um, and two things I can say about that and about importance of, of that. Um, the Orthodox have been uh, traditionally skeptical about ecumenism, right? Um, confusingly, they were both skeptical and okay with it, which is another story. But, but there was a lot of skepticism in the Orthodox world regarding ecumenism. And when the Orthodox try to do Orthodox international events, you know, because we haven't had the Pan-Orthodox, uh, Pan, Pan, um, yes, Pan-Orthodox Ecumenical Council for, I don't know, a thousand years. Um, and there was an attempt in Crete in 2016. It was kind of not necessarily terrifically successful. Um, it has become a sort of paranoia uh, of the Orthodox about anything to do with the outside. Not, not only that they've become skeptical and uh, reserved about other Christians, they've become skeptical and reserved towards the other Orthodox. Um, if you listen to the many criticisms that were brought to Crete, you know, to the the attempt of a pan-Orthodox council in 2016, you will hear the word ecumenical uh, bended about a lot. Um, and they, in, it's almost like a reflex. It's become, a, it's become an uh, uncontrollable, irrational reflex that any sort of grand or big or international gathering is ecumenical. So... Um, bishops, Orthodox bishops, for instance, the one in Yash, uh, I know that because that's where my home is, um, uh, was criticized for taking part in the heretical ecumenical council of Crete, right? So there isn't even, it's, it's the thing, things have, um, things have uh, degraded to such an extent that people don't even know the difference anymore between ecumenical and pan-orthodox. It's become like incredibly irrational. My second example is, you have heard perhaps, uh, we, we all have uh, sadly uh, heard the uh, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, you know, since the word war has, you know, has started. Um, it's been a year now, uh, the war in Ukraine. And he uh, talks about, and Putin, they kind of carry together this line of the decadent satanic West, 
you know. Um, uh, everything is demonic. Everything is satanic. Everything is a threat to the identity of Russia. Um, everything is a threat to the values. Everything, you know, from the evil West. The West does this and the West does that. Now, um, for my research uh, on Orthodox and Ecumenism, um, I had to read anti-ecumenical positions. Um, ironically, I didn't want to, <laughs> but my supervisor said, look, you, you, if you want to make an argument, you have to present both cases, both both sides of the argument uh, in, you know, uh, in, in, in as objective a fashion as, as possible, you know, so I had, I couldn't sort of, uh, despite my distaste um, of consulting such material, and it's awful. It really is awful. I mean, I was traumatized. If you if you start reading about what some people say, used to say, still still say, any search, just search. If you put in Google now, Orthodox and Ecumenism, just see what kind of... Uh, 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 <laughs> dramatic nonsense uh, comes up and you will see demonic you will see satanic you will see all of these things and um, it so happens that Russia was one of the skeptical actors in the ecumenical uh, scene they started uh, uh, in about I don't know 99 probably 2000 they were very vocal against WCC. They wanted a special status and this and that. Um, in some ways, this inability to engage can produce such dramatic results. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying the war in Ukraine is a direct, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, consequence of not being ecumenical. But I'm saying perhaps being a bit more ecumenical and uh, resist the urge to call the others hereticals and demonic and satanic and so on, perhaps that would have, you know, would have um, made such a thing as this war a, a bit less likely. Um, I, I see a direct continuation between that language of the heresy to the current day language of the demonic West. And just to finish... You know what Patriarch Kirill said one of these days among the many, uh, let's say, uh, uh, questionable things <laughs> he, he, he keeps saying. He said um, he was meeting some Muslim um, leaders, I think, um, and he said, you know what, we have much more in common with you guys than we do with the Christians in the West. So this business about the Christians in the West being, you know, uh, uh, somehow, um, you know, up to no good uh, is not new, is not new. And, um, well, and because you asked me what, um, what, uh, a gain would be, you know, from engaging in ecumenical interacts. You know, this would be one of them, you know, that would prevent us from engaging in such nonsense, you know, with things we don't really know. But do you grant that there is 
a real legitimate concern on the part of, and I'll use the word, traditional conservative Christians with regard with certain tendencies prevailing, especially in Western countries, which have very different non-traditional views of what it means to be human, of what it means to be Christian, of also diluting beliefs of Christianity, core beliefs. So um, that's one point. That's, the second is that there is there a legitimate skepticism towards dialoguing with, let's say, groups that have, again, embraced extreme views about many things, right? From a more traditional point of view, uh, um, some extreme views that are very problematic. And I think the ecumenical movement is even harder after the culture wars, after some of the, the view, the values that are promoted, including by the European Union. And again, I'm trying to sound not, let's say, I'm trying to say, well, there are some legitimate concerns. And I agree with you. Nothing is, re nothing is resolved by not discussing. But then the, the question arises, what do we discuss and what is on the table, right? Do we discuss these things that are really, you know, went too far in the West? Uh, you know, th things about gender, things about uh, how do you define a human being, all of these. And, and we, Eastern Europe, who are part of the European Union, Poland, Hungary, us, Romanians, we feel the brunt of this clash of values. And I hope personally that we'll not give in. I think this debate is worthwhile. I don't think it's a source of, uh, let's say, fanatical discord that you described from patriarchy Will is good. Nevertheless, before the war, you know, I, I didn't disapprove of the things he said. I mean, the critique of the West, maybe it was ideological, maybe it was propaganda, but to us in the, who are in the West and who kept, keep our mouth shut, it sounded refreshing. Now, in retrospect, I realized, well, it probably was propaganda. He was using that discourse. But still, those things needed to be said. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. <laughs> okay, well, um, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate issue. Indeed, um, it's, it's hard to um, um, uh, digest, you know, some of the, um, uh, you know, uh, novel uh, issues of conversations around gender, around the fluidity of gender, around how that sort of seeps into the clergy of some of the Western churches and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, in in a sense, I was I was thinking actually of that because I, I started my research probably back in two thousand and nine, and I finished it around two thousand fourteen. I, I think uh, in a sense my my project is a bit outdated because these things were not uh, au courant, you know, uh, in in those days. I mean, of course they were they were they were up in the air, but they did not have the um, you know, intensity, um, and certainly the conversation uh, around them was not as, um, I don't know what the, the word to use, intense and uh, passionate and, uh, uh, you know, as it is these days. Yeah, the culture wars were not yet burning yet or not, yes, and they no, were not, not yet yeah. diluted, the, they were, have not in, entered the conversation. I know I was worshiping in Protestant churches 2000, until 2010. It was very different. Now it's much more militant and ideological, I would say. Sorry to interrupt. This is one of the, one of the problems is that it's all changed. Well, this is precisely one of the problems. It's changed so very quickly. It, these are issues which became prominent within a few years uh, and for I mean, even for the most liberal of people, perhaps they were sort of unprepared for the for some of the issues that have been raised. Um, now, but back to what you said about uh, Patriarch Kirill and his uh, declarations about you know about the um, about the, you know all of these inno innovations from the West. I would um, push back a little bit, with your permission. Um, I think that, well, I'm not even going to mention that, of course, such a discourse should not, does not, and should not justify war. Um, you know, however much you disagree, uh, you're not going to start a war because you don't like uh, gay parades and, you know, whatever else he, he said. Uh, but but um, even if you have a problem with these uh with these new aspects, if you have a problem with, I don't know, um, if you have if you have a problem with with gay people or or with gay parades or with um, with the plurality of, of genders or the fluidity of gender, uh, so uh, certainly um, you, it helps no one if you start calling these. Um, demonic, destructive, um, um, uh, whatever language, extremely strong language they used. Um, some of these issues actually, um, uh, you know, uh, sprang from real, uh, re you know, real 
things that were happening, you know, like it's uh, perhaps they've been taken a bit too far, but, um, you know, there actually exist people with, you know, gender dysphoria. It's not an invention of the West. There are people who, uh, you know, are uncertain about their sexuality, about about their gender. I mean, I'm, I, I'm still not uh, up to date with using these terms and I may get myself into trouble. But, uh, but uh, so these concerns are not invented. They started from legitimate realities, you know, in a sense. Now, um, you may wish to, I mean, as, as an Orthodox traditionalist, not, not you personally, but I mean any Orthodox traditionalist uh, would want to, um, how should I put it, to, 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 to um, uh, push back a little bit, you know, to say, well, my traditionalist view does not conform to, um, you know, more genders than two or something like that, you know. Um, but I still think uh, a conversation is, is needed. There's another another aspect, actually, I wanted I to think mention. From what I understand, more traditional religious people have issues with uh, precisely ideological instrumentalization of any of these, right? That you... W- becomes weaponized and uh, used to, uh, you know, to control certain things. Um, and definitely, you know, it, it, one of the issues, you know, we should never, uh, let's say, uh, we should always love any person, right? Uh, anyway, please. But, uh, yes. Yes, but um, this uh, I uh, there was a sort of a tangent on which I went uh, with uh, the war in Ukraine and um, all of this. Uh, this was merely illustrative in my mind as a failure of um, being open and being sort of uh, informed about the other Christians and so on and so forth. So it was just an extreme probably exaggerated, but but still useful in my mind, um, example of an extreme view which the Orthodox can reach um, also because there has been not enough, uh, you know, um, dialogue, conversations, um, exchange of ideas, and so on and so forth. Um, I think any exchange of ideas... Uh, by the way, is is important. Um, And yes, uh, you you mentioned that we perhaps ought to remain a bit um, uh, skeptical. Uh, I'm a big fan of skepticism, so we always have to be skeptical about everything, (laughs) if you ask me. Um, So yes, uh, and these issues are becoming in, in... ecumenical dialogues, these issues are becoming more and more difficult. Uh, the conversations are becoming more and more difficult because of the issues that keep changing, that, you know, are, are being added, you know, um, like the ones, we, you know, we've mentioned with the, um, you know, uh, gender discussions and so on and so forth. But this does not mean that there should 
not to be conversations, perhaps even more so. Um, I, I know that uh, what what I know that you are an admirer of Stanhard, Nikolai Stanhard, the Romanian writer, and and he he would say we are asked to do we we're not Christians to be called to do predictable things. We're called to do the impossible. We're called to achieve impossible things. So I, I think we have to maintain a degree of that, um, I don't know what to call it, um, a drive, I think. It's a, it's a drive in, in love, um, in, in maintaining um, the exchange going. You know, and I think that um, yes, it's very hard. It's harder than ever. Uh, guess what? It's supposed to be probably it's supposed to be hard. Humans are incredibly complicated, and particularly when it comes to issues of faith and religion and so on. So I, I think the expectation of of going to ecumenical dialogue is always. Uh, encountering issues on which we can agree, you know, issues where, yes, it's fine when that happens. And of course, we can agree on some fundamental doctrinal issues. Um, but, but yes, we have to go into ecumenical encounters also prepared for the difficult talk. Um, it can happen. It, you know, I, I still believe it can happen. There can be disagreements, conversations, uh, arguments even, but on in a civilized, um, loving way, it's not, let's just say it's not impossible. <laughs> um, but back to my, absolutely, yes. Um, but everybody needs to make, imagine what an effort Protestants will have to make in dialogues with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, after the war or during this war, where it's terrifically difficult. Um, people do crazy stuff um, on all sides. <laughs> um, and um, and I, I, I do believe that all of these conversations, as, in as far as we're concerned, the Orthodox, they help us better understand who we are. They better underst- help us understand better our orthodoxy, if you like. Um, and yes, if there is an argument against any of these issues, we'd better know it. Because I, I bet you uh, my bottom dollar that uh, you know uh, ordinary faithful have no idea other than to call them demonic and so on. You know. Um, um, well, I, I think dialogue, dialogue is important, but dialogue is not, we don't do dialogue for the sake of dialogue, right? I think the, the goal of the Christian is to, or let's say, to grow in in, in sainthood and to become uh, more like Christ, living through the life of the church and participating in the sacraments as you described it, right? Dialogue is part of that, but I don't think is sine qua non. I'm, I don't think you need dialogue to, you know, you need love. You need, and so love, dialogue is a form of love. Yeah, I agree with that. Love, dialogue is a form of love. But then I think, but then going back to your point, I think to the definition that we started with, is is there a point where the, if if the participation if that you describe in the life of the, 
a church in the life of prayer, if that is not in place, is dialogue still possible, right? Because you say it is, ecumenism has to be centered in the life of the church, in, in, in Christian life, prayer, liturgy, and transformation. And, yeah, and I think a, that's a Yeah, good, that's a very point. good point. I, a don't good think, point. I don't think it's proper dialogue. You're right. I think that um, in order to have a dialogue in the spirit of love, like you said, which would be the real sort of dialogue, that would be profitable dialogue. Now that would have to come from a spiritual place. You know, it, it, it's not going to be a diplomatic agreement. It has to be a continuation of our life in the sacramental life of the church. So it has. This, this is where it springs from, uh, and this is what it may will give its strength. You know, um, this is what it, this is what will give its strength and its uh, foundation. But maybe if I return to my book, uh, which I uh, expertly avoided discussing ever since we started uh, our conversation, um, maybe some maybe I'll answer indirectly some of these these questions. If you if you, if I just tell you what. I kind of wanted to do, well, not wanted necessarily, but what I ended up doing in, in my book, following my, you know, readings on, on, on these themes. So, I mentioned this question, right? Uh, why should we be there in ecumenical environment? Now, apologies again for my dated uh, approach. This is this is these are conclusions from some while back, but. Maybe they retain some some sort of um, relevance. Um, so, um, the Orthodox have two reasonings uh, that validate their participation in ecumenical contexts. So this is my this is about my book now. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of what you find in my book. Um, Perhaps in a slightly different order, but um, so one of these one of these reasons why the Orthodox participate in the ecumenical movement is rather blunt and unceremonious, and the other is a bit more sophisticated and a bit more inspiring. Now, the blunt argument is that since the Orthodox have the correct faith, it is their calling, indeed their duty to try to convert those outside the church to the Orthodox faith. So ecumenical participation from this perspective has a purely missionary purpose, which is to convert the other Christians to the right faith. So that's why we go, some people say, and participate in ecumenical meetings. Um, now you may rightly argue that not really ecumenism, since there's no dialogue involved, um, and it's a one-way, one-directional approach. Um, it's also kind of offensive you know, for the other Christians involved in these processes. Um, and by the way, this blunt um, approach has been suggested uh, by rather subtle theologians like Bulgakov, Florovsky, Kalistos uh, Ware, um, it is, if you like, a direct, inescapable consequence of the una sancta ecclesiology. You have no, you have no other choice but to think that, in a sense, you know. Um, however, many theologians, including some of the ones I mentioned, 
um, also suggest another more nuanced approach, uh, which I find to be more constructive. Um, and these theologians speak about a prophetic role of orthodoxy in the ecumenical movement. Um, this discourse, by the way, was, was carried into the World Council of Churches. This is what many Orthodox participants from the very beginning have said, that the role of Orthodoxy is prophetic. Now, what does this mean? Um, the Since the Orthodox Church has remained the faithful carrier and witness of the full truth of faith, it has consequently the task of calling back all stranded Christian groups to the one original church. So the truth of the church has been preserved unchanged with the purpose not only of preserving the fullness of Christ's truth for the salvation of its local communities, but also to render the church as a seed or a matrix, a durable paradigm that will allow separate, separated non-orthodoxy to return to the structures ethos and doctrine of the original Church of Apostolic Times. So, orthodoxy has not safeguarded the truth of Christ's Church from the other Christians, who are seen as having departed from it and chosen less perfect ways, but in a sense, for them. So, while this position is related to the conversion approach a little bit, it opens up a new avenue for the Orthodox to participate in ecumenical contexts. All of a sudden, they are not forbidden to participate in ecumenical encounters, but on the contrary, they are obliged by the very internal logic of their faith to be a part of the ecumenical scene. Betrayal is not being present in ecumenical encounters, but being absent from any ecumenical encounters, because you have the truth. You're supposed to be there for the others, others to see it. You know, that's at least the argumentation. Um, moreover, this is an important thing uh, in which I've discovered in my book, when speaking about calling the world to the right faith or to orthodoxy, which is different from simply witnessing uh, to the orthodox truth, this calling of the church to its orthodoxy transforms the conversation from a strictly external one to an internal one as well. Because the call to orthodoxy is addressed to um, the orthodox and not only to the other Christians. Perhaps it is addressed primarily to the orthodox. This is what the church does. It calls everybody to life in Christ. Therefore, the message is no longer join our orthodoxy, the orthodoxy we already possess. But let us all together join orthodoxy as a form of purified Christian life. So it's a common goal for everyone, including the orthodox. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey. I'll talk about this in a second a bit more. So, so this is a position on the basis of which we could still talk about ecumenism as something doable for the orthodox, something expected of the orthodox, indeed something essential uh, for the orthodox in living out their faith. Now, this allows uh, for the conversation to continue, in my view. And in a sense, this is what made my book possible. Now, where do we go from here? Um, 
I mentioned the state of confusion with which the Orthodox often join in uh, ecumenical encounters, uh, the fear that often grips them. Um, you know, you set foot in the WCC, you're going to hell, that kind of stuff. Uh, you, you carry that with you one way or another all the time. Uh, and this paranoia is what often characterizes Orthodox participation in ecumenical but places. But also, just to interrupt you, it's not yes? just paranoia, it's also a hesitation based on uh, an opaque uh, situation, right? Uh, because you are committed, and that's, I think, the difficulty and the complexity of religious dialogue. It's the tension between commitment and openness, right? You are committed to your faith and to your practice. And I like that you emphasize practice, right? Because I think practice does not allow you to pass judgment or to be judgmental or to accuse because you know how hard it is. <laughs> you know how hard you're trying and you're in via, you're journeying, and you should keep your mouth shut and keep your nose to the grindstone and stop making big theories. Uh, and uh, so in a way, dialogue might be an exercise of humility where you're not, where you Right, where you're going there to learn something. Now, uh, the challenge, even for me personally, is because our, let's say, modern world, Western culture, they're very big on openness. And I always tell my students, well, how do you balance openness with commitment? Right? It's very easy to say, well, I'm open, whatever, right? But then there is a point where you can say, you have to draw the line, of course, and say, these are my commitments. I cannot. This is it. This is my commitment. Right? So that the tension between those two, I think, is there's no recipe. There's no, okay. It's it's something we each personally, I think, grapple with and and uh, and try to keep in balance. Sorry, Christian. Well, no, it's a very good uh, point. Um, I think practice, like you say, and particularly participation in the sacramental life of the church, this is well everything should start, in my view. Well, the liturgy, you know, to put it more uh, plainly, you know. Uh, so the liturgy for the Orthodox is the starting point of everything. Um, so, yes, I would not want an openness that is not grounded in that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want just an openness for the sake of just being nice, uh, for the sake of uh, just, uh, you know, projecting, uh, sort of welcoming, as blah, say, blah, blah. As they say in Minnesota, it's nice to be nice because Jesus was nice. Yes, it's nice to be nice. It's, it, it really is. But, but that niceness uh, had better be based in, in some, if, you know, if, if all of this happens, um how shall I put it, between Christians in a sense, uh, well, not in a sense, it's just, uh, so the liturgy, I'm, I'm seeing things from an Orthodox perspective now, uh, as I should, uh, being Orthodox, um, the liturgy is the starting point. This is where I would like any dialogue to be based. But it's, yes, uh, there is an opaqueness, Um in these dialogues, many things are unclear. It's not entirely. It's it's a it's a difficult uh, environment. It's difficult. 
in a sense, it cannot be really, it cannot be simple. It's been two millennia of separations and um, so it cannot be simple. It's, it's going to be complex. Um, but, but there needs to be also, I'm, I'm interested in the Orthodox because I'm Orthodox and I'm, you know, um, I'm more interested in what we can do, you know, rather than telling others what to do. Um, so uh, what the Orthodox could do in theory is, is you know, bring a communism closer to the liturgy, you know, um, and and make it clear that that's what we do. And it's not something external, menacing, uh, distant, somewhere outside, about which we may or may not worry, you know. Uh, so it's, it needs to be a part of our life in the church. I'm not saying everybody should participate, but but, but it should certainly be kept uh, in the community of the church. I, I wouldn't I don't want I wouldn't want the communism to remain an external thing because it'll always remain external. It'll be terrifically opaque and um, and there will be no uh, benefit. And the benefit, by the way, uh, for the church, if you like, is that these people participating in ecumenical interactions carry something back with them. And it's not always, uh, you know, uh, dangerous theories about gender, you know. Uh, it's it, There are other things as well. That can also happen. That can happen. And you never know what you, what you bring back, right? Hence... I, I'll, I'll tell you my opinion is that in the Orthodox Church there is not sufficient debate on these issues. You can't will them away. You can't say, I'm not going to talk about gender issues, therefore they're not going to exist. This is childish. You can't do that. You have to have a conversation on it. Um, and uh, there is terrific opposition in the Orthodox world to even mention these things. Even the fact that I'm mentioning it now, I'm not... I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not situating myself on any side of the uh, conversation, but even mentioning it makes it dangerous in itself. This is certainly not a healthy attitude to have. Well, however well, dangerous these things may be. Yeah, but some of these issues are also, I think, ideological because uh, I think there is an ideological side to this. And I think in many ways, the church is wise not to fall into the trap of making these that important and the center of everything, right? Uh, so I think that there is a way in which uh, some of these subjects have become maybe too central and have uh, or hijacked. They're not discussed at all. Forget about central. No. They're not even on any agenda of conversation. Not only that they're not on any agenda of conversation, they're kind of almost forbidden. Even the mention of them, do you think that's a healthy attitude to have? Because at the end of the day, we're not even going to know what these things are about. Uh, in many instances, we'll simply presuppose 
from hearing rumors here or there or reading, uh, you know, conspiracy websites as to how, you know, uh, all sorts of, uh, I think that, I think, that, but this brings us back to the conversation on conversation, you know, on dialogue, just how important it is to just keep it going. It's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. Uh, we're, we're always trying to simplify things and make them sort of more palatable and more, uh, we just, sometimes we just have to discuss about things. We just have to talk about them. Um, Okay, so um, the paranoia, which I mentioned, uh, when I'm talking about active metanoia in the title of my book, I see this dynamic transformational paradigm as opposed to that constant reservation, fear, or paranoia. Indeed, my unofficial initial title for my book was From Passive Paranoia to Active Metanoia. Uh, But I eventually thought that my book was potentially controversial enough without a provocative title like that. Um, In any case, the dynamic metanoia, which I'm talking about, uh, would be a shift of stance allowing for a more transforming and repentant approach to church unity in humility, like you said earlier. Uh, And um, whilst still maintaining the premise that the unity of the church means a return to the spirit of the primordial Catholic universal church, a return to orthodoxy as purified Christian life uh, within the sacramental universe of the church. Um, This new vision would propose a new set of paradigms. I've identified four. I'm not going to talk in detail about them. Simply as a sort of, um, just to point the direction uh, of this, you know, active metanoia uh, sort of uh, approach. And I, I spoke about the, the theme of journey, journeying together, to see this as a journey. Um, and it's together because we're all, you know, sort of trying to reach orthodoxy. Um, it, um, and uh, it, I'm interested in the image of the journey because it's of a continuous journey, actually. This is important because this is... Um, will always be journeying together. Uh, This opposes to a degree the programmatic approach, which you mentioned earlier, that we're reaching stage A and then we're reaching stage B and then stage C and then finally by stage D we're done or something like that. This is not going to happen. There isn't going to be a time when we'll say, you know what, we're all together now. There's no more need for ecumenism. There will always be a need for uh, unity because there always will be disunity. There always has been disunity, pretty much. But, um, but also there will always be a unity because there will be no no totalitarian or total unity, right? I think that's another extreme that maybe we, we should avoid, that we force unity, right? I think one of the beautiful things about the church and Christianity is in the real sense of the world, the diversity that which you cannot force into a uniform unity, right? Uh, so <laughs> I think that uh, if something, I mean, I think Christians need to be forced to look inwards. I think 
we ought to be looking outwards. It's part of the Catholic understanding of the church. We, the union is more. The unity of Christians is more perfect. Is 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 it becomes more perfect as it becomes more complete. I mean, of course, this is just a vector. It, it cannot really happen in real life. But um, we are looking outwards because this is what. This is how we understand being a Christian. You know, that's no, nobody is forcing us to go and talk to other people. You know, um, we just do it because this is what, this, this is what love uh, directs us to do. You know, so of course, any form of totalitarianism uh, is uh, should be avoided. There's uh, no question about that. Um, certainly, I, you know, shudder to think what a totalitarian ecumenical world would look like. I, nobody wants that. Um, As I was reading your conclusion, I was reminded of the Jewish writer Martin Buber, mm-hmm. uh, I and Thou. And yeah, yeah, that's from Stanley. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, and then I spoke about the theme of unity. We, we've just touched upon it. You helped me do that. Um, then uh, we, I spoke about ecumenism as spiritual enterprise, and we, we touched upon that, um, that it, the ecumenism starts at an interpersonal level. Um, and um, it, in a sense, follows the matrix of the Trinitarian love. You know, we're called to this... Uh, communitarian love we're, we're called to see uh, the other people as part of the same um, hypostatic being you know in a sense like uh, uh, we 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 uh, yearn to be united with with the others you know this is like I'm all I'm speaking of course from uh, purely you know, theological point of view, uh, but nevertheless, that vector should remain, you know, uh, present in our lives. You know, we cannot, it's almost like denying uh, our own, you know, identity. And of course, there's the theme of ecumenism as koinonia, of diversities, and this was suggested by Father Johan Sauka. Um, he had this vision where um, diversity, the, the idea the idea of diversity should be embraced because, as he pointed out in the iconographic depiction of the um, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in individual tongues of fire, you know, above each of the apostles. So it's in a sense that we're, we're it's not a kolkhoz, as he said, you know, it's not like a, all together, you know, collective like farm. yes, it's like a collective farm. It's 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 uh, we're being given these individual gifts of grace, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I connected that a little bit with uh, the uh, so what some of some of the Orthodox uh, scholars have suggested that um, when pushed to think of a of a possible sort of ecumenical reality, like churches sort of becoming unified uh, through, uh, you know, common intercommunion, I suppose that would be the visible sign. 
um, but they thought that the federative structure of the Orthodox Church would be a good example for a potential, you know, sort of church of the future, you know, unite the church of the future. Um, now, of course, this seems a little uh, less likely after we see what's happening uh, in Russia and uh, Ukraine. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it seems almost a bit dated, <laughs> that sort of uh, optimistic uh, view. So, so very briefly, I was suggesting this spirit of metanoia, of transformation uh, with which the Orthodox, because this is, we, we can only change ourselves in a sense, you know, um, or start by changing ourselves. And, um, and uh, following all of this, I, I reached a sort of conclusion, which I'll uh, very quickly uh, read from the book itself. It's, um, if you remember, the, the, the starting question was why do we participate? Why do the Orthodox participate in ecumenical encounters? This was unclear to me, even as I was participating in ecumenical encounters, and I could not, at the time, find a sort of uh, an answer. Uh, and not that this is a definitive answer, but it's a, a sketch uh, on which perhaps to build um, in the future, particularly in as much as Orthodox participation in ecumenical processes is concerned. So uh, to repeat, the question that has underpinned and motivated this research has been why do the Orthodox participate in the ecumenical movement and how can they negotiate an involvement in the ecumenical movement together with their non-Orthodox counterparts, considering that the Orthodox see their church as the one and only church? So this is a pretty complicated question. The answer proposed is that the Orthodox should participate in ecumenical encounters because they see their aspiration towards a constantly outreaching communion with their fellow consubstantial humans as their very life and identity as Christians and as human beings, according to the model of the triune God. Attempts towards communion can be sustained if they rest on that sacramental, not sentimental, love, which is fueled by a full and continuous immersion in the liturgical life of the church. <coughs> Apologies. The fact that the Orthodox see their church as the only one, as the only true church, should not deter them from joining ecumenical encounters, but on the contrary, should motivate them even more, since alongside this great privilege of membership runs also the heavy and unique responsibility of gathering together the whole world into the one body of Christ. So that was, was, that was my proposed answer to that very difficult question. And it's in some way, perhaps my book has validated it. Thank you very much. <coughs> um, what is your next project? My next project? Well, I mean, been, <laughs> you can talk about your next project. My, well, I'm working a lot on Nikolai Stannard at the moment. And um, I've actually written about Nikolai Stannard is the famous spiritual uh, Romanian writer. Some of your listeners may be familiar with his name. I, um, I'm interested, actually, among other things, of his ecumenical 
thinking. I've written a little bit about that. Um, but at the moment, I'm the, he is my main preoccupation. And I'm not quite sure what I'll do after that. I'll find something hopefully interesting. Yeah, I, I think uh, Nikolai Steinhardt, uh, as a sequel or building on these spaces is quite appropriate because in the landscape of Romanian Christianity uh, it would be very hard to find someone more cosmopolitan, more Catholic or uh, universal so to speak, absolutely, him. absolutely, absolutely. And he has an incredible way to be centered but at the same time be open uh, and embrace uh, right it, it, truly the Catholicity. Uh, he was fearless. He was fearless in approaching anything. Like he um, had no fear about <clears throat> potentially, you know, stepping into da dangerous territory. Um, but his this is exactly what, in a sense, I was sort of pre. Uh, figuring in, in my book this is precisely what if, if you live a life in, in Christ and it, you know if you stand hard um, when he wrote for instance the, his journal of joy his famous book he had had an encounter with Christ a, a mystical experience um, so we can see how grounded in that experience and of course he, he was living a, a you know saintly life and later on he became immersed fully you know in the sacramental life of the church as we know as, as a monk but even before that he um, was fearless precisely because his life was anchored in Christ you see that's my point that if if we base our lives in the sacramental life, and if we put on Christ, as it were, um, we acquire that sense of solidity, that sense of groundness. You know, we're not easily shaken by by anything. And if, and and uh, by the way, Stanhard was an avid uh, uh, arguer. He he would he would enter into conversations about any topic, and if he disagreed, he would argue with you. Very, quite vehemently, but in the spirit of love. And so, again, perhaps his is a paradigm. I often see it this way, a paradigm perhaps for, for the future, for how uh, we, we see ourselves as Christians uh, in a world where we, whether we like it or not, we have to become ecumenical. It's become more and more, you know, pluralistic, you know, cultures living together. Um uh, more and more, uh, more global, more and more globalized, whether we like it or not. You know, um, this is the new reality. But we're equipped, you know, as Christians. Um, perhaps we can even benefit as Christians, as Father Nikolai did. You know, um, but the, the but, other side um, of that multiculturalism is definitely learning to dialogue, but also learning to be rooted and grounded. Otherwise, it's very mm -hmm. easy to yeah, absolutely lost. Yes, anyway, I, I, I want I, to thank you for this time. We had a beautiful, long dialogue. Very, yes, it was. Uh, I yes. enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you very much for uh, yeah, and for, for pushing back uh, against some of my uh, uh, liberal excesses. But um, I, I think um, I think we we um, I hope I haven't uh, uh, you know shocked you or anyone, and perhaps I've 
been able to provide some uh, useful um, you know insights but thank you very much for having me Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.